0: Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Two weeks ago, I participated in Tech and Society Week a series of events across Georgetown's campus put on by a consortium of research centers across the university, spanning disciplines including ethics, national security, foreign policy, law, public policy, public administration, and public health. Tech and Society Week is a physical manifestation of that network, hosted by Emily Tavillarius, who is managing chair of the Georgetown Initiative on Tech and Society. Emily invited me to join a panel with two other tech podcasters, where we interviewed one another about a handful of current topics and themes in tech and tech policy. One of my fellow guests was Quinta Jurassic, a fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, a senior editor at Lawfare, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. Quinta is one of an array of hosts in the Lawfare podcast, and she's the co-host of a miniseries called Arbiters of Truth that focuses on the information ecosystem. The other guest was Bridget Todd, who is Director of Public Communications for Ultraviolet, a gender justice organization trying to build a more feminist, anti-racist internet. Bridget is the creator and host of iHeartRadio's tech and culture podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, where she explores the intersection of things like gender, race, disability, identity, culture, and the internet and social media. Let's jump right in.
1: So we're going to have a little bit of a smorgasbord of, of discussion this morning. We're going to talk about uh, some of the themes and issues that we've been hearing from the guests that we've hosted. And we'll uh, do our best to try to, you know, query one another as we go along. So what we've done here is we've kind of each come up with a couple of questions for the others. So we're each going to kind of trade off being host, essentially. I'm going to start off uh, and then we'll pass the, uh, the baton, essentially, or pass the mic, I should say, um, to each of us. Um, and I'm going to start with Bridget um, because you, you know, just introduced what you do, the kind of issues that you're concerned with. We're in a a moment in this country uh, where uh, gender issues, trans rights, uh, you know, a range of things have uh, happened, uh, even in the last 24 hours, that affect this discourse. You've been bringing that up with regard to tech, with regard to social media. Uh, there's a lot of talk right now about policy around uh, kids' safety. Uh strange that seems to intersect with some of these concerns, um, it's different in red states than it is in blue ones, uh, but there's a lot that's out there. Um, when you kind of think about these issues, think about what you're hearing from the folks that you're talking to, laws that might limit certain types of expression, uh, criminalize certain behaviors, laws that are putatively to protect children in certain contexts. What's top of mind for you? What are people telling you?
2: Yeah, we're in such an interesting time with regard to how we're thinking about social media and the way that it kind of is on all of our our plates in terms of our our media diets. And I think whenever, for me, whenever I hear lawmakers talking about regulating things online in order to protect kids, I have like a spidey sense that goes off, right? Where I'm like, oh, I don't know, well, something might be coming that it's not great. And so, you know, I think about myself, right? Like I, one of the reasons why I make a tech podcast is because I was that like weird kid in like the middle of nowhere, Virginia, who grew up feeling like an alien. At the time, I didn't realize what was going on is that I was like a queer black girl in a completely white southern town. And if it wasn't for the internet, I would have felt completely alone. I would have never been able to connect with all these different parts of my identity and ultimately understand myself better. And so, you know, I look at these laws that are saying kids need to have their, their parents permission to go on social media, like that law out of Utah. And I wonder, had that law been in place, what would that have been like for 11-year-old, 12-year-old Bridget, who didn't have anybody IRL in my community helping me feel affirmed and helping me understand my own identity, right? And so, my first question is, how will this actually play out for the folks who are going to be most, you know, uh, impacted by it, the youth? Um, I also think that when we're talking about laws, right, like making certain behavior criminal, I really get concerned that we're not listening to marginalized people, right? Like we have seen before when lawmakers pass legislation that is meant to protect kids online, it is people who are marginalized who are most impacted by that legislation, oftentimes her, right? Like, And so I wanna make sure that we're actually centering and listening to those folks when we're making, you know, drafting legislation. I also feel that like, you know, if, if folks watch that TikTok hearing, part of me wonders are our elected officials just slapdash proposing legislation and proposing bans and proposing criminalizing certain behavior precisely because they haven't really done a lot of governing and legislating up to this point? They want to say like, oh, here's a big flashy symbol that we've done something. We haven't just done nothing, right? And so. I don't feel like good substantive, meaningful legislating comes from a place of needing to grandstand. So I want to make sure that we're actually listening to those who are going to be most deeply impacted, and making sure that we're not just you know throwing out laws to make it seem like we're you know taking this seriously to make up for the fact that y'all that folks have folks with power have really done I I swear jack shit in in terms of actually uh, managing this problem. But I do agree it's a problem, and you know I don't want to make it seem like. I'm saying that we should do nothing because something definitely needs to be done.
1: There's a di- jurisdictional issue, you know, what what folks might want to do in California might be alongside <coughs> one set of values versus what folks might want to do in Utah.
2: Exactly. And I think the point that you make about the the Utah legislation is like if you, if you need to have age verification in Utah to go on social media platforms, you need to verify that person's age, their identity, that they actually live in Utah. That opens up a whole host of issues about like whether or not we should be trusting social media platforms to, you know, whether or not they should be linked to people's actual identities. There's a whole bunch of communities for whom that would be a real problem. I also think it's kind of paradoxical, particularly for that Utah legislation that the answer for keeping young people safe online and their data and privacy safe is to ha- is for them to hand over more information to social media companies. Like something, something about that math isn't mathing for me, and so I have a lot of questions.
1: I've been traveling the American South. It's been interesting. I was in Louisiana, where you know they have a rule now that you have to upload your. Your uh, license, your ID, in order to uh, look at pornography, right? You have to confirm uh, your ID. Who, g- <laughs> yeah. For
2: whom is that going to be like a good experience? Like, oh, let's just get my ID out. This is definitely a transaction that I want my you know, DMV records involved in.
1: <laughs> you know? Well, we've already <laughs> taken it in that good direction. Uh, I'm going to switch gears and uh, Quinta uh, come to you. Let's talk about something um, that you've been talking about, that I've also been talking about on my podcast that I'm, I'm very interested in. Um, we mentioned gender. AI, that's the topic of the du jour, the topic of the moment. Uh, everybody's, you know, kind of querying uh, what's going to happen, chat GPT, et cetera. One of the things you've been looking at is liability uh, for perhaps the makers of generative AI systems like uh, OpenAI, uh, but also perhaps for the companies and individuals who will employ it in different ways. What do you think are the core questions that will determine how courts and lawmakers Think about this issue. What are the experts that you're talking to telling you?
3: Yeah, I think this is a really, really interesting issue. So, for a little bit of background, so usually internet services, websites, you know, I'd like to use Twitter as an example. Um, are shielded by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act for most liability for third-party content on their services. So the example that I usually use is that if I post something defaming Justin <laughs> on Twitter, uh, Justin can sue me, but he can't sue Twitter. And so the, the question with services like ChatGPT is are these models essentially putting out third-party content Or when, you know, you put in a question, um, if I say, does Justin kill puppies into chat GPT and it, comes up with one of those weird answers that's kind of not really connected to reality and says, yes, he does, (laughs) is that third-party content, because it's essentially answering a question I put in, or does that content trace more directly back to open AI, in which case they could conceivably be liable um, despite Section 230? I think this is a super interesting question. Um, Justin and I have both put out podcasts interviewing a a range of experts on it. I think we got pretty widespread of opinions Um, Some. People saying uh, Section 230 absolutely would not protect uh, companies like OpenAI or companies like you know, Microsoft who employ those services because you know part of what is exciting and new about these technologies is that they're producing something new, right? It's not just you know if I put something into Google and it spits out a bunch of results at me. It's combining information that's producing something new and creative. That's what's so interesting about it and in that sense. Perhaps these companies actually could be held liable. On the other hand, um, I think the strongest uh, advocate of this view is a a lawyer named Jess Myers at the Chamber of Progress, who we both spoke to, who takes the view that, well, you know, the technology is new, but it fits within the structure of things that we've seen. Uh, that are protected by 230 like search engines that essentially it's taking a bunch of information that's out there in the same way that Google does if you put in, you know, where can I buy movie tickets or something like that and it's assembling it for you and Google um, does receive Section 230 protection for the results that it gives back to you and so Jess's view is, well, in that sense, you know, perhaps material that is produced by a large language model like ChatGPT would actually receive protection and OpenAI would not be liable um, and there are a range of, you know, views in the middle, I think that this is really, really important. It can sound kind of dry and technical, but I think if we zoom out and think about the role that the responsibility of tech companies and sort of the role that Section 230 has played in our public discourse can clarify why this is so crucial. So a lot of the Section 230 has kind of become a hot topic Mm -hmm. Um, for, for good and for ill. I would probably say mostly for ill in my view, unfortunately. But because it goes to this question of like, how much responsibility do we want tech companies to bear for what they do? Now, the sort of follow-on effects from holding them liable, I think, are really complicated and often we've seen redound in a direction that really harms people who are vulnerable, you know, rather than harming, say, Mark Zuckerberg's bottom line, it's harming someone, you know, it's harming an isolated kid in a town where they don't feel like they know anybody. So I think that's, let's kind of bracket that for a moment. But I do think that the, the way that Section 230 has become such a hot topic politically really points to this sort of desire for people to see tech companies not just get a free pass on everything. You hear that language a lot. To see them held accountable, to, to make them be responsible for what they put out there. And so I do think that there's this kind of irony where Companies like OpenAI are, you know, really bursting onto the scene and saying, here's our new amazing technology. Oh, it's not regulated. Who knows what it might do? This is important to kind of move things forward. At the same time, as, you know, in just a slightly different sort of policy space, you have people really screaming at the TikTok CEO saying, you know, why isn't your platform doing more? Why, you know, why isn't Twitter doing more? Why isn't Facebook doing more? Et cetera, et cetera. And so the folks who I've spoken to really feel like, if, if we take the view that Section 230 does not or should not protect outputs from services like ChatGPT, their argument is that's really important because in the same way that Section 230 allowed the internet to kind of blossom and grow, um, in the late 90s and the early 2000s because companies were freed from having to worry about liability, that, you know, not, open AI not having to worry about could we be held liable in court for the outputs of this system means that they can be a lot freer in experimenting and building this system and moving the technology forward. And in their view, it's really important to maintain that immunity. I will confess that I am a bit leery of that because I look at this and I say, we've just had, you know, five, ten years of people kind of taking a step back and saying, oh, whoa, these tech companies have become way too big. They're way too powerful. We've created a liability regime that is hard to untangle and fix, but it is one in which they generally don't bear responsibility. If they, you know, if they decide to be bad actors and, and not moderate at all, um, do we really want to carry that over to this brave new world where generative AI is going to be playing such a huge role? Maybe we should take the view that if you do agree that Section 230 does not protect generative AI outputs, that that's a good thing because we should want these companies to put the brakes on and say, what are we doing? Let's think a little bit more before we, you know, release this out into the wild and see how many terrible things it can do. And I know that OpenAI, they do have some serious people working on what's called the trust and safety components, So essentially making sure that people can't do terrible things. Um, but there, I mean, there are plenty of use cases that we've seen people, Put together and people are very creative, <laughs> including in bad directions that I think are really concerning. And so I will say, I mean, the, the tricky thing with this area of law is that we're not going to know what the right answer is until something bad happens and somebody sues. And so I think the answers are a few years out at the absolute earliest, but it's absolutely, I mean, We're seeing generative AI, you know, all of these conversations about how much it's going to change. Uh, Believe me, the lawyers are also paying extremely close attention.
1: So one of the things I'm paying attention to is the language that people are using. Uh, And there's this phrase that you've probably seen uh, reported or used, prompt engineering, this Mm -hmm. idea of the prompt engineer. And part of this sort of question about Section 230 and liability is who is the information content provider? And uh, the industry voices seem to be saying the information content provider is the prompt engineer. It is the person who enters the query into the generative AI system. So when you go on Dolly or Midjourney or ChatGPT and you give it a little bit of uh, verbal instruction, uh, you in fact are the person who is responsible for providing the information in that context. Do you buy that?
3: I don't know. I mean, I'm, this area of law is very complicated. The technology is new. I, the only thing that I'm sure about is that I don't know what the answer is. Um And I think that that's also important to keep in mind because we are in a moment of real flux in terms of what Section 230 looks like and how the courts interpret it. So uh you all may have paid attention to the recent case before the Supreme Court, Gonzalez versus Google, that spoke directly to the question of, how and to what extent companies can be held liable for sort of sophisticated recommendation algorithms, whether those are essentially third-party content or whether those are designed by and curated by the platforms to the extent that they should no longer receive 230 protection. The Supreme Court justices seemed kind of not too eager to really jump in feet first and change things up. Um, But it is totally possible that we get a decision from the Supreme Court that really changes the contours of Section 230. It's also possible, I mean, we've seen a lot of aggressive judges in the lower courts sort of taking the view that the statute should be changed by Congress or interpreting it very differently. There's sort of intermittently appetite in Congress to take a bite at this apple and see if they want to change things up. So I think I'm both unsure under existing law how we should interpret 230 in relation to prompt engineering and generative AI. And I'm unsure where the law will go, even in just, you know, the next few months. It's just really hard to say.
1: So by way of uh, transitioning the host duties to you, Bridget, you also just did a short series on uh, AI for Mozilla. Uh, Any comment on this before you pick up the...
2: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. It makes me... I take no pleasure in saying this, but I agree that I think that a lot of these questions will be answered when something bad happens. Um, I don't think that we are the kind of country or the kind of people who are good necessarily at proactively thinking about these things. We're always in sort of a reactive mode and not a proactive mode, which I think is one of the problems with how tech fits in our, into our culture sort of more generally. Um, I also think that one of the conversations i wish i was seeing more of i think i'm seeing it more now is the ways that this is going to be like a racialized gendered harm right like we if you've been paying attention to stuff on social media recently just recently there was an app that was advertising on meta and um twitter about how they could take anybody's face and put them to, put them in anybody's video right like anybody's likeness and they were using an image of i think it was um who's the woman from harry potter i always forget her name emma Thank you, Emma Watson, right? And so the the advertisement was like clear what they were trying to demonstrate, right? Like you could take this person and, and non-consensually put them into adult content. That was like very clear. And I think the ways in which this is going to be a a, a harm that impacts marginalized people the most, I think we need to absolutely be talking about. Frankly, I don't think we have the range to have that conversation. We haven't had it up until this point. I don't see us having it uh, now, But, you know, we're already at a time where digital harms are manifesting in real world harm for um, women running for office, particularly women of color and black women. With the addition of AI and not really thinking proactively about the harms that it could be responsible for, I really am concerned about the way this will really derail our democracy going forward. And so, um, I don't have high hopes. (laughs) But I think that it's something that we absolutely should be thinking about. Um, And I also have to say, like, you might think that you're someone who would never get taken by an AI image. I also felt that way. I got taken by that, that fake Pope AI image. Do you all see that? Of like the Pope wearing a Balenciaga puffer? I was like, wow, the Pope is wearing this puffer. Okay. And then, you know, you scroll by it. You don't think much of it. Then yesterday, I was like, wait, that was AI? I, I believed that. And so don't, like, you might think that you are, you know, too savvy to get taken. I got taken, y'all. So
3: <laughs> harms are real. I also thought that was real. Right, <laughs> I will confess, yes, yes. And the thing is, you know, if you look at the hands, you can tell, but you're just scrolling through, right? You don't look closely. And so there are services, like um, the good people at Bellingcat have amazing workshops that you can do to train you to spot images that are generated by AI, but not everybody is going to do one of those workshops. And also, you're not going to, we just don't have enough time in the day to give that much scrutiny to every single image that you just scroll through.
2: Exactly. And like, I guess I, my ultimate issue is that I think that it's a little dose of skepticism when we're online is always good, and we should, like slowing down when we're online is always good. The fact that it's up to me as a just a social media user to be, you know, being really skeptical and savvy and critical when I'm just scrolling t- Twitter while I'm making my breakfast, I think that is indicative of the fact that we've kind of moved too quickly and the, our culture and like the norms around how we interact with technology has not moved as quickly as it should be. Like we're in a, in a different place than we ought to be. Over to you. Well, um, one of the questions I have for you. So I read or I listened to your recent podcast interview, um, where the guest whose name escapes me, um, I should look it
3: up. It's Robbie Eyer. It is Robbie <laughs> yes, Iyer. Thank you. Uh,
2: so it was all about how content moderation is really not as effective for sort of building the digital media ecosystem we want to see when compared to things like good design and, In my nine-to-five job, I work in sort of platform accountability. And so my job is scrolling social media or sitting in really boring Zooms where people give me examples of things on social media platforms that basically violate their terms of service, right? So this, this image of Kamala Harris shouldn't be up because it violates the terms of service. Compiling that... Scheduling a call with leaders at Facebook or TikTok or Twitter waiting a month for them to set the call and then reschedule it And then being like hello um, Here are your terms of service here are ten pieces of content that violate that Can you please explain why these do not violate your terms of service or take them down? It is boring work It feels like playing whack-a-mole in the least fun way and the least effective way and so Hearing that from your guest, that that is like not an effective way to do it, really made me feel affirmed in how much I don't like doing that work. So my question for you would be, are there things that we're kind of clinging to in the space where we're trying to build a better digital future for everyone that really maybe are not the best uses of our time or maybe are not going to be the most effective? And are there examples of folks getting it right that you're hearing?
3: Yeah, I think this is a really, really interesting and thought-provoking question. So for background, so this is an interview that I did recently with my co-host Alan uh, with Ravi Iyer who used to be at Meta um, left recently and now is sort of doing a lot of really interesting thinking about rethinking social media from kind of a uh, engineer's perspective. And so the argument that he was making was based on an essay he wrote with a kind of provocative title, content moderation is a dead end. <laughs> and he explains that, you know, what he means by that is not that nobody should moderate content. Obviously we should moderate content. There's a lot of stuff that you don't want on your platforms, but rather that kind of going, you know, piece by piece is important, but it doesn't help us fix the problems that are causing these sort of underlying toxicities in the ecosystems that we're we're using, right? That, you know, it's super valuable to have people like Bridget doing this work, but that at the end of the day, you know, you're going to come back tomorrow and you're going to have to do it again because there's going to be more stuff on there. And so... What I found super super interesting about what Ravi was arguing is that his view is kind of we need to take a step back, a step back and think about this more from a kind of a design perspective. How are we building our platforms to potentially encourage maybe without meaning it people to behave in ways that are. Abusive, harassing, asocial, you know, posting, say, uh, falsified images on generative AI (laughs) without identifying them as such, right? And how can we redesign platforms to encourage different kinds of interactions? he he mentioned uh, i can't remember which platform this is or maybe it was just speculative but there's an idea of having a, a button where instead of you know a, a heart or a retweet or something like that you could have a button that says you know this is thought provoking mm. um which i really liked <laughs> because i feel like a lot of time when i like something on twitter that's actually what i mean but that you know you can make these design changes that actually do change how people interact with systems. And while we were having this conversation, I actually found it weirdly hard to conduct the interview because it felt like trying to fit my brain into a different paradigm than the one I was used to using. Um, Because I think we are all so used to being able to, you know, point to specific things that are going wrong, right? Like this post shouldn't be there, that post shouldn't be there, this post was taken down, then it shouldn't have been taken down. Um, And kind of zooming out and trying to think about it in a more systemic way um, was actually just sort of psychologically very, very differently for me. And if you listen to the interview, there are a bunch of places where I ask him questions and he says, well, I think that's actually thinking more in a content moderation mm-hmm. level. Here's how you should zoom out because it's really hard to kind of reorient yourself. And I do think that par- part of how I was thinking about it is that, you know, we're all playing different roles here, right? So I think in sort of our, our podcasting, wearing our podcasting hats, we're trying to kind of help people understand these platforms and these forces that are so important to their digital lives. Bridget, when you're, you know, reaching out to Meta and saying like, Hey, can you please take this down? You're playing the role of essentially being the ombudsperson that they frankly should have in house anyway, but often don't and then there are also engineers like Robbie, kind of on the back end saying how can we rebuild this system to make it better and the thing is I think it's actually it's really difficult kind of from the front end just as a user to conceptualize that because we don't have access to the back end and to some extent I think that is just a sort of question of what role different people are playing but to some extent I also think it, it speaks to the absence of transparency on the part of these platforms that you know With TikTok, for example, there's a lot of conversation around the TikTok algorithm and how opaque it is, right? Or with Twitter, given how Musk has been making all of these changes, right? There are all these changes to what appears and what does well and what doesn't do well. And I think we all sort of have this sense that this is just a sort of opaque force that is acting in our lives that we can't possibly understand and part of that is because there's not transparency about these design choices and how they're made I will say one of the things that I actually really liked about Twitter pre-Musk was that they often would say like hey we're trying this out we're going to put a little banner up when you retweet something without reading it saying like do you really want to treat this and journalists like myself left to complain and say like I actually wrote it <laughs> but <laughs> I do think if I'm remembering correctly there was some data indicating that that actually did help in spreading or in limiting people from spreading material with you know false or incorrect comments on it. So in the absence of that transparency and a sense of why things work the way they work, I think it's actually really hard to kind of fit your brain into this different model of understanding platform design. I'm, I'm curious what you think about this as well.
1: I sat here thinking about something that I heard Maria Ressa, uh, the Filipina journalist and media entrepreneur who recently won the Nobel Prize, say, which uh, to some extent content moderation, she described it like uh, you, you take a mug and you reach into a dirty river and you <laughs> scoop out some water and clean what's in the mug. And then you pour it back in the river. <laughs> this
2: is what my day-to-day feels like every day.
1: And I thought that is the perfect metaphor for, uh, for what's going on with content moderation. And uh, like you, I, I struggle with, uh, like you, Quinta, I struggle with, you know, there are a million questions to be answered about qu- content moderation. Labor issues and, uh, you know, efficacy issues and all sorts of questions about how these platforms do or do not deliver on their terms of service. Uh, and why, and, and, you know, and how can we get to a, a sort of better performance to some extent? But on the other hand, I, I tend to agree with Robbie that, you know, big picture, we have not designed a social media ecosystem that is pro-democratic, that is pro-social, um, and that ultimately will, I suspect, maintain us into the 21st century.
2: Yeah. Well, that feeds into a question that I really wanted to ask you about sort of, are we in this place where all of us have just come to expect the worst when it comes to what kind of digital ecosystem we have and could have? Um, in a piece on your site for, um, about the TikTok congressional hearings, you use this great AOC quote. You say, where she says, our first priority should be in protecting your ability to exist without social media companies harvesting and commodifying every single piece of data about you without your consent. Um, and I guess I wonder, like, When I read that quote that you put in your piece, I thought, wow, what a concept, right? That, that, that we should, that we could be able to expect an experience online that wasn't just, you know, extracted and commodifying and buying and, and, and selling every piece of us, every piece of how we show up online. So my question is, do you think it's possible to get to that shared tech future and you know, where we can expect something better of our online experiences and what should be, like, no pressure, but what, what are some things that can get us there?
1: Um, I'm also a teacher. I teach a course at, uh, NYU and, and also at Cornell Tech this semester, uh, along with a handful of other faculty called Tech Media and Democracy. So I have students, which is what leaves me with optimism at the end of the day. There are people, and there are some in this room, I'm sure, that are, uh, trying to build a different sort of internet ecosystem. They're thinking about some of these questions. They, you know, uh, really truly want to to build things that that hopefully produce a more healthy uh, discourse and uh, and take into consideration some of the things that we're talking about. I I, do, I definitely think it's a sort of whole of society. You know, issue. It's something that we're, we're, no one company, no one entrepreneur, no one lawmaker is going to introduce the law that magically fixes everything. It's going to take literally millions of people deciding, you know, is this what we want? I I truly don't have the answer for you. But what I do hope we'll see, you know, over time is this sort of pro-democratic movement, respect for dignity. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one of the things that I, I keyed in on AOC's comment. She was not, She's not a member of the Energy and Commerce Committee. She wasn't at the TikTok hearing. Her comment on the TikTok hearing came in her first TikTok post yeah. ever. Um, <laughs> but in many ways, you know, she's sort of a genius with social media. No doubt she'd be a genius about social media. I think she nailed it.
2: Are you optimistic when we think about our, our tech future? I go back and forth.
3: <laughs> I mean, I think in in many ways, it really does feel like the conversation has become a lot more sophisticated in recent years. And I think that, I don't wanna say that none of these issues were present before 2016 because they obviously are, and Bridget, you in particular, have done a lot of work showing exactly how that was the case. But I think that, you know, 2016, with the issue of Russian election interference, there was sort of this massive public freakout about the internet. And in some ways, I think that was positive insofar as it, it involved people identifying issues that have been felt by a lot of communities for a really long time. But it also meant that I think there was sort of an overcorrection in some areas of like everything, everything online is bad, um, everything is the Russians, uh, everything is an information operation, that sort of thing. And I do feel like as we've moved forward from that, that the conversation about the role that these platforms play, how they can be manipulated, how they can also just be used in ways that have a bad effect by people who really are trying their best, but do believe falsehoods, or maybe who are just being terrible, but are, you know, Russian disinformation agents, they're just people who suck. Um, that those issues, it does feel to me like the Public conversation, the coverage in the media, maybe to at least a little bit in Congress, maybe, has become more nuanced and sophisticated, and I do think that that is a really positive development. Just if you look back at how, you know, the New York Times covers a potential disinformation operation, it's really like night and day from 2016 to today. That said, we obviously have a really, really long way to go, both in terms of, you know, the sophistication of policymakers and addressing these issues. I think the TikTok hearing was like, it felt like there was kind of a split screen where Congress is, you know, hammering the poor TikTok CEO. And uh, meanwhile, every single privacy expert. Um, was just screaming like we just need a comprehensive privacy law. This isn't just a TikTok problem. Please, God, we need a comprehensive privacy law. And there was just not very much interest in that on the committee. And so that I think is you know there's a long way to go there. I think that Musk's purchase of Twitter and sort of mission to burn to the ground the platform's trust and safety capabilities is a really is a real step back. And a reminder of the fact that these platforms are by and large controlled by powerful individuals who can kind of do whatever they like with them. And it doesn't feel like we've made much progress in terms of mitigating the capability for one individual to cause such harm. So I don't know. I think there's reasons for optimism, reasons for pessimism.
2: Yeah, I mean, most people that I work with who work on internet issues, they have some mix of the two, yeah. right? Pessimism, optimism. It depends on the day, I guess. Um, and I think I, that's a great transition into your, um, some of the questions I know that you have for us.
3: Yes. Yeah. So let me turn to you first, actually, because this goes to sort of some of what I was talking about. So you've, on your podcast, you've, talked I think really effectively about sort of issues that marginalized communities in particular black women have faced online that often were not sort of recognized by the broader society until they kind of spilled out so you did a a season on disinformation you did a season on targeted harassment both of those things are issues that I think sort of burst into the broader public consciousness with the 2016 election and the 2020 election in terms of election interference, you know, election lies, harassment of election workers. But, you know, there were people who were raising the alarm really early on about these issues and by and large were not sort of listened to by people in power. So, I'm curious if there's anything that you have your mind on, you know, that you've been watching, that you've been seeing, you know, black women, other folks deal with online that you think, you know, a few years from now, um, policymakers and people in power are going to turn back and say, oh, wow, this was a huge issue and that we might have been able to deal with if only we had been listening.
2: I love this question. Um, I think one of, one of the reasons why I'm interested in sort of doing this work that looks back is precisely what you, what you clocked just a moment ago about how we're only now starting to have the substantive, I mean, maybe substantive is too strong, but having the <laughs> conversation, right? Like, I remember not even that long ago, having to call law enforcement because I was getting threats online that were like getting pretty, sca- pretty serious. And, you know, a police officer came to my apartment and he said, I think that you should stay off the internet. Yep. <laughs> just close your computer. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, you know, like, like that as advice just showed me that we were not in a place where we were having conversations about the real world harms that can, that can start online. And so part of the reason why I'm interested and invested in doing this work that looks back is because we're At a point where I think folks are starting to realize that what happens online does have real world implications. Um, I think we're seeing so much of what marginalized communities, particularly black women online have been warning about play out right now. Like, one of the things I'm really concerned about is Elon Musk's plan to blow up verification online, right? Like, I don't know how many different stories I have done on the podcast about how uh, some sort of social media harm that involved disrupting an online community started with impersonation, right? We know it was a problem in the 2016 or the 2020 election. Um, a Senate inquiry confirmed this. We knew it was a problem because black women and black feminists online had been saying and, and talking to tech leaders and saying, like, hey, this is going on. We're finding you know people pretending to be black, people pretending to be in our communities to disrupt them, and it's a problem. And so I I think that we don't necessarily have to wait very long to see the manifestation of some of these harms that um, some of the most marginalized social media users have been talking about and, and reporting for a really long time. My concern is kind of what what I think your question gets at, is how far does that go? Like, I think that come April 15th, we're going to be having a very different conversation about what happens when you just blow up verification and you allow people to buy it for $8 or however much it costs. So that's one thing, but I'm really concerned about, like, the thing that we, you know, the thing that we're that we're not seeing, like how is that going to manifest? What harm is that going to going turn out to be? How is it going to disrupt our communities, both online and off? How is it going to disrupt our democracy? Um, those are the things that like keep me up at night.
3: Do you think that we've gotten any better at identifying those in advance, or no?
2: No, I I don't. <laughs> I wish I could say that we had, and I think part of it is because bad actors and people who want to use social media platforms to cause harm and disruption. They know that by starting with marginalized communities, communities who are overlooked, silenced, not listened to, not believed, not trusted, they can really test out and perfect these methods and no one with power is going to do anything. People who are marginalized can say all day long that they're being targeted in X, Y, Z ways. They can give you specific examples of it happening, but if people with power and institutions don't do anything, it doesn't really do any good. And so I think we're watching the ways that these tactics by bad actors have been perfected and refined on certain communities and now they're sort of like targeting other communities, right? Like I'm thinking about things like libs of TikTok, right? Where, you know, edited or taken out of context videos of LGBTQ folks, trans folks, queer folks, and public educators, right? Are used to weaponize their identities against them. That was, that's been going on for so long, but we've just sort of allowed it to happen. And I'm sorry, but in the case of Elon Musk, like amplified it, protected it, Tacitly endorsed it, perhaps, and so I think the fact that we just are trained to not listen to marginalized people is going to be a real problem—not just for the marginalized people who are targeted, but for all of us, because you know it's going to be all of our problems soon.
3: So, Justin, I wanted to turn to you to ask about sort of the the question of how we talk about these issues and. Since Elon Musk is just completely inescapable, um, let's talk about the Twitter files. (laughs) So we've all, I think for our sins, done some, some reading and some talking about these. And a lot of the material in there, I think it's fair to say, is... Spun to a point that is pretty misleading, that is sort of overstated. You look at it and there's just not very much there. But I know you said, you know, there is material in there that is generally genuinely worth talking about when it comes to the relationships between tech platforms and governments in terms of government requests to take things down and how platforms handle them. So first, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And then second, sort of building off that, I'm curious for your thoughts about how we have conversations with nuance about these genuine issues in an environment where there is so much bad faith. And I think the Twitter files is a good example, but you can extend it so much more broadly. You know, if we talk about harms on social media platforms, there are a ton of people out there who are very willing to just kind of seize that and run in a direction that is completely disconnected from the facts. And I know something that I struggle with in my own work is, you know, how how useful is it to kind of be standing there and saying, actually, this is the issue, you know, or are you just kind of standing in the middle of the hurricane and not making an impact? So how do we think about having nuance in these kinds of conversations?
1: It's an interesting question for a bunch of different reasons, but one is, uh, you know, we do have to have a reasonable conversation about the proper relationship between these massive social media platforms who are imbued with an extraordinary amount of power over our politics and society, uh, and the relationship to government. And that conversation is a global conversation. It's a very important uh, set of questions, not just in the United States, but in India, uh, where we're seeing some very worrying signs, uh, and a variety of other democracies around the world, uh, where that relationship is really fuzzy, unclear, uh, and worrisome You know, things are, are, are going in the path uh like you Twitter files I've struggled with how to talk about it when to talk about it uh whether to take seriously you know uh some of the dialogue even in congressional hearings that have uh, focused on this this issue uh, but you know there there is something of a there there in terms of asking the question um you know what should be the proper protocol uh, if an official in a federal agency would like to contact a social media platform and essentially do just what Bridget was describing earlier, which is to say, we've come across this material. Uh, it is against your platform's policies. Uh, it may be creating a public health uh, concern or maybe creating a national security concern. We'd like you to look at it. You know, What is the, the sort of legal you know, framework in which one can do that, the policy framework in which one can do that? That seems like a legitimate conversation to be had. Uh like Mike Masik, another tech podcaster who's looked at this stuff very closely, I have yet to see anything come out of the Twitter files that I would look at and say, well, there's the smoking gun. You know, the, 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 the global censorship apparatus that uh, you claim that is being built uh, is there. Um, more, I see, you know, a lot of people generally well-meaning. Trying to plot ahead, mostly concerned about offline harms, mostly concerned about actual, you know, people being hurt by a phenomena online. And they're trying to muddle through. Uh, is sometimes their language imprecise? Is sometimes, you know, perhaps the impressions that they're leaving behind, perhaps worrying? Do we have to, you know, think about things like jawboning and First Amendment and the rest of that? I think so. Absolutely. But we need to do it in a kind of cool-headed way, I mm-hmm. believe um and i unfortunately you're not seeing that in jim jordan's committee you know and it's important to remember that you know jim jordan himself is someone who has uh, been a disinformer you know he's one of the main uh, proponents of the 2020 uh, election fraud campaign and absolutely abused his power on the judiciary committee uh in order to influence uh, you know the DOJ and, and potentially the FBI uh in in that moment. So you know it's kind of an irony in that in that regard.
3: Given all that, right, how in an environment of bad faith, how do we raise these genuine concerns with nuance and get people to care about them without getting sucked into the conversation that is already so saturated with you know, misleading information.
1: So we've talked about transparency uh, and how important that is. You brought that up, and Bridget, you brought it up as well. Um, I do think that when you look at some of the concerns, uh, even if they are overblown on on the right and on this regard, and you look at the concerns, perhaps on the left uh, around some of these questions, if if you could take the politics and the subject matter out of it and you look at it in clinically. I think you'd see that mostly what people want are clear rules and transparency, uh, and they want to be sure that there's no funny business going on, uh, behind the scenes that they don't understand and they can't, you know, kind of put eyeballs on. Uh, so to some extent, to me, the answer is sitting there, which is let's look at transparency. Let's look at that. But even some of the transparency bills that have been put forward, things like the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act, those have been attacked. Essentially, as uh, tools of the of the the censorship apparatus, because they would perhaps you know give uh, data access to to academics uh, who could only have leftist interests uh, and only censorious interests, right? So I don't know if we'll ever get there, but I do think that at the end of the day, in the clear light, if we were to just stop yelling at each other for a moment, <laughs> um, people do mostly want the same thing.
2: Yeah. I, I agree and this is something that gives me a little bit of hope is that You know, when I talk to one thing that folks on the left and right have in common is that like they both believe they're being, you know, unfairly censored by social media, right? They both have like kind of sometimes similar complaints and concerns and worries about social media. Nobody wants to feel like they're being scammed by, you know, a tech billionaire. Nobody wants to feel like they're being, you know, commodified and bought and sold and not be, not even being cut into the deal by tech billionaires. And so I think that that is like a uniting force that I think a lot of folks feel. is just that, you know, we don't want to be scammed. We want, things, we want the rules to be transparent. We want to not feel like somebody is getting one over on us. And so I think that is a very common kind of American value that I think might be the thing that gives us common ground on this issue.
1: At the end of the day, I often think that our arguments about tech policy are really arguments about the quote-unquote rules. Mm-hmm. Who gets to do what? Who gets to say what? Who gets to make the rules? Yeah. Who gets to decide? And to some extent, because we can't seem to have a good conversation about those issues uh, more broadly, you know, our constitutional issues, our legal issues, et cetera, uh, because that seems like such a sort of frustrated path, uh, a blocked avenue, we argue about it with regard to tech.
3: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and in some ways, I mean, I do think that the strength of First Amendment protections in this country mean that there is a lot that the government can't do. And so it all gets sort of shunted over to private platforms, which is itself a, a difficult and complicated conversation.
1: I'm sure we could go on for another hour, uh, but unfortunately I believe uh, we will have to g- draw it to a close. I want to thank the organizers once again. Uh, I want to thank these two excellent guests and hosts uh, for for being here today. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you to all of you. Uh, we're going to stick around for some questions, I think.
0: That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at Justin at or find us on Twitter at TechPolicyPress. Thanks to Emily Tavularius, thanks to my co-founder Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.